Well, I forgot to say something in my announcement, so I will say that now, and that is just to ask you guys to all pray for us over the, the coming week. As you were flying out to Washington, most of you know that my son is getting married out there. Um, but here's why I want prayer, not just for travel. But I don't preach unless I preach the gospel, and I'm going to that I know is not only recept- not receptive to the gospel, but is hostile to the gospel. And so I want God to change hearts. People don't come to weddings for, ser- for sermons. I get that. But we have weddings, a God-ordained creation, a covenant relationship to point to the relationship of Christ in his church. So it is inherently gospel-oriented. So I would love to see families' lives changed, our own families' lives changed, and God can work miracles in that regard. His word never returns to him empty or void. It always accomplishes his purpose. So please keep us in prayer for that. Um, We are on part three I kind of want to say we're on part three of 27 in 1 John chapter 2 because you could literally go forever on this, but we're going to wrap it up today. We're on part three of three in 1 John 2, 18 through 29. So we'll do things a little bit out of order. This will be a little bit different. If you haven't been following along with us, I hope that this will still all tie together in a way that you can follow. But let's actually open with prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. Lord, sometimes we can easily take it for granted because it's everywhere around us here. But we ask that you give us the hunger for your word that those who are are literally dying for it, even fragments of it, um, that they, they long for it, they thirst for it. Give us that same sense as we live in comfort But open our hearts to your word this morning, Lord. Help us apply it to our lives, and by the work of your Spirit, illuminate this text to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have opened each part of this series, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, by using this battle analogy of holding the line. We've hold the line against the enemy, and we've kind of used some movies. We won't go back over that. But as we've worked through this passage, what we have seen is that John actually opens it up by laying out the threat that is posed by false teachers and false Christians, those that look like Christians within the church and then leave. And then as we move through this passage, we receive the encouragement from John and we receive instruction from John equipping us to face these threats that are around us. And that is really where we're going to wrap it up this morning, is seeing more about how we are equipped to be courageous in the face of these. Now we have seen, and it's a wonderful thing, we have seen the assurance that Jesus Christ will preserve to the very end those who are His. Right? Those who are saved will persevere to the end. That is the perseverance of the saints or the perseverance of Christ in His saints. But the hard part is, and we saw this last week, that God will use events and He will sometimes use people and other circumstances to purify His church. And we've seen that throughout history. Sometimes it's very painful because in the course of that, He identifies those who are false Christians. And they leave. And all of this is in an effort to make the bride, the church, holy and acceptable to the groom, Christ. And we know that holding the line in terms of biblical fidelity, in terms of Faithfulness to Christ is difficult in the world right now. But sometimes we forget 
that it's always been difficult. It was difficult then as well when John wrote this letter to the churches in Asia Minor. But it is nearly impossible, if not actually impossible, to remain faithful if instead you are seeking comfort. If you're seeking success by the world's standards. If you're seeking approval from people around you. Or the flip side of that, if you fear the disapproval of people. You remember we said last week, the only thing that can replace the fear of man is the fear of God. The only thing that can replace the fear of man is the fear of God. And that takes us to our first example. I'm going to give you two that just make life tougher for us. Someone shared with me on Thursday night a social media post, and I'm not on social media, so they read it to me. And it's a good thing, I don't know the people involved. But it was yet another social media post of apostasy, right? Leaving the faith and enlightening all of those around, enlightening all those who will read it on why you're leaving the faith. Now, these are a dime a dozen, right? You, you go online, you can find these all over the place. This is the modern crowd. But what was hard for the person reading me this post is that they knew this person. And they had known them their whole lives, and they really appeared to be a Christian. They had grown up in a church, and they seemed like they were the solid one in that family. Now, I'm not going to go into the post. I'm going to ignore the, 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 the silliness of it. It was completely illogical, and I can say that whether you approach it as an atheist or as a Christian. Most of these types of apostasy posts They're well-written, they sound wise, but if you take everything to its logical conclusion, you end up in the same place, just this imaginative version of God, and we're all gods, and that's kind of where this one ended up. But what struck me in that post was the sort of self-congratulatory thing that this person wrote, and I've seen this many times. What she said was, many of her supporters had given her great encouragement to write this and told her how brave she was. How brave she was for doing the right thing. For coming out and renouncing her faith. For rebelling against God. And putting those pesky Bible-believing Christians in their place. Pointing out that they're wrong. It was so brave, essentially, to join the world. To get the approval of the world and embrace sin as a normal and good behavior. Which is what she went on to do. Every time you see that, you've got to recognize that that is not bravery. Right? That's actually the exact opposite of bravery. It's insanity first, but it's also pure, unadulterated cowardice. You actually don't need bravery to get blown about by the winds of culture and to follow culture wherever it's going. You don't need any bravery at all to live in rebellion. You need bravery, and you need boldness, and you see the apostles pray for boldness. You need bravery, boldness, and courage to live a life faithful to Jesus Christ and to proclaim truth, right? And the absolute standard of truth, the only truth, is God. And we know God through His Word and through the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we need to pray for, is actually boldness and bravery to hold the line, right? To not crumble under the pressure of a God-hating world. We are living in a period of great rebellion. We are living in a period where it's pretty easy to see God's judgment. We saw that in our opening this morning with that, that example, which would have made a great one, 
in the course of a sermon. But no longer are people hiding this rebellion. It's open. And for those of you with children or who can influence children, you had better be instructing them daily with your lives and with your speech and in the Word of God. Because the world is not coming for the kids. It's already here. right? It's already here. It's not hiding its intentions anymore. And if you seek the approval of the world, then you cannot follow Christ faithfully. We remember the lead-in to this passage in 1 John 2.15. It says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And of course we know James 4.4, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So you cannot submit to the world, whether you want to call it brave or cowardice, you cannot submit to lies and then seek the approval of God. It doesn't work that way. Because the devil and the world do one thing very, very well. Very well. They work to make all righteousness, all conformity to God's will look strange and odd and backward, small-minded, while at the same time making sin look normal. And that's the world we live in. It's the trap for false believers, but it's actually also a trap for Christians who want to be embraced by the culture around them. It doesn't cause you to lose your salvation. But it does break your close fellowship with God. It begs for His discipline as your Father to draw you back to Him. There's another problem, second example I'll give, that we face today, and it's not just that type of love for the world, not just that thing, but it is the nature of the world that we live in. By the world, in this case I mean the United States. We live in a pluralistic culture. That is just, uh, if you don't know what pluralistic means, there's many gods, there's many ways to heaven, all, you know, all dogs go to heaven. That's, that's kind of the way that works. But that's contrary to the truth. Right? In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In John 3, 3, when he is speaking of the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, He says, unless one is born again, he cannot even see the kingdom of God. You will be blind to it. All throughout Scripture, it is consistent. There is only one way to salvation. Only one way. The Gospel is exclusive. Salvation is exclusive. And that makes us very uncomfortable. It's exclusive, but it means that all people are forgiven and saved the same way. And only in one way. Through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Right, We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And not by works. Not anything that we can do to earn our way there. And we see that throughout Scriptures summarized greatly in Ephesians 2, 8-10. But many Christians really wilt under the pressure of standing firm on that statement. It makes us unpopular. We get the scorn from the world. So I want to give you, you can, again, you can find lots of examples of this, but there's one example that just is burned into my brain, so this is the first chance I've got to get, actually use it. So I'm going to use it. It's from 2005, so it's kind of dated. But it's frustrating to me, because it is a missed opportunity to proclaim the gospel, and it shows you the pluralistic view of false teachers 
false Christians, heretics, and the damage that they can do with a lie. This is an interview that Larry King, the late Larry King, did on his live program. And he was interviewing who he announced at the time to be the pastor of the largest church in America, the largest Christian church in America. He was interviewing Joel Osteen. And he asked him to lead into this. It's a lengthy interview. He asked to lead into this part. He asked Joel whether faith is required or whether you can get to heaven just by doing good things, being a good person. And if you guys don't know the answer to that automatically and emphatically, either you haven't listened or I have done a really poor job of communicating Scripture to you. That should be a no-brainer instantly. But here's what Osteen said. I don't know. I don't know. What do you mean by that? Larry King said, uh, well, if you're Jewish or Muslim, you don't accept Christ at all. Osteen, you know, I'm very careful about saying who would or wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. On live TV, mind you. Larry King, well, He's not letting it go. If you believe you have to believe in Christ, they're wrong, aren't they? Osteen, well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. And I'm not going to read you the rest. It never gets any better. Never gets any better than that. That is somebody who thinks they're a Christian. Or some people think they're a Christian. 1 John, we remember, is written for a purpose. It is written so that you know that you're saved. So that you can know, right? This is 1 John 5.13. So you can know that you're saved. And the Bible clearly answers every single question that Larry King asked. With clarity and purpose and pointing always to Christ. And we have to remember as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, we're not called to be passive. We are called to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints, Jude 3. We have to contend for it. And we have to do that whether that makes you popular or whether it makes you a fool in the world's eyes. A small-minded, bigoted person preaching the exclusive gospel to save people for all eternity. Jesus warned in Mark 8.38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, that is us, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when He comes in the glory of His Father with the holy angels. You have to remember, this is not a game in this life. We are actually in a war, and that war has eternal consequences for the people around us. And you have to hold the line. You have to persevere in Jesus Christ to the end. Let's read our passage. Starting in verse 18, 1 John 2. Verse 18, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, so that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you, you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. 
Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He made to us. Eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Last week as we worked through this, we closed with a focus on the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. And we noted that at Pentecost, you see this in Acts 2.4, the Holy Spirit proceeded forth from the Father and the Son upon and into every Christian. And that is true for every Christian of all time. All people. And John affirms this in verse 20 when he says, you've been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. We covered that at length. And the Holy Spirit always glorifies the Son. Always points towards Christ. Always glorifies Him. And He plays many roles. But we see these roles spelled out in John 16. In verse 8. And when He comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, in Jesus. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. The Spirit will glorify Jesus, for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Such a wonderful, wonderful thing. Now we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We believe. But what does John mean in verse 27? When he says that the anointing that you receive from Him abides in you, that's good, right? The Holy Spirit abides in you. But then he goes on and says, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it is taught you abide in Him. You have no need that anyone should teach you. What does it mean? Well, one great misconception that I've heard taught in the church I was part of was that this promises that at the very moment of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which happens to every single believer, at that moment, you no longer need to study. You no longer need to be taught the Word. You no longer need to hear from anybody because God will simply just fill your head with knowledge. And how nice that would be, would it not, to just immediately know everything. But they'll go further. Is that not the promise that Jesus gave directly in Mark 13? Mark 13, verse 11. Jesus is talking about the persecution that will come. And he says, Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. So doesn't it mean, these two verses together, that all knowledge will just magically be imparted to you in that moment? Regardless of whether you approach your faith with diligence and love for God and love for His Word, or whether you forget it and park it on the back shelf and approach it with apathy and laziness. Now, I want to suggest to you what you already know. 
You know this intuitively, that the right reading of those verses is clearly not that you will just be imparted with all knowledge, with no focus on God's Word, with no need to actually be taught. John is not telling us we have no need of teaching or learning or filling our hearts and minds with God's Word. Because in that moment of trial or persecution, and remember, he was talking to the apostles who he had taught day in and day out for three years. In that moment of trial or persecution or difficult times, it is the things that we have learned and dwelt on with our hearts that the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance and use in our lives. We know that that's not what John is meaning for another reason, though. What is he doing here? He's writing a letter. And he's writing a letter to believers in the church. And it is a letter that applies to every Christian in every church for all time. And in this letter, what is he doing? He's teaching. He's teaching truth. He's exhorting his readers to take heed and follow Christ in his fullness, to obey all of his teaching and commands. John is teaching in this letter while he writes, you have no need that anyone should teach you. So we know that it can't mean what I just said. In fact, you know it for other reasons as well. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Right? Colossians 1.18 And we read in Ephesians 4.11-14 that Jesus gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds and teachers one office to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, right? every strange teaching, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So we know again, we are meant to be taught. Jesus gave the pastor-teacher to the church. These are the men called as elders with the primary task of preaching and teaching and prayer and defending the faith. But it doesn't just rest with the pastor elder. It's a role for every one of you. Every one of you. Think about the Great Commission. It's again that part we often ignore. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19-20, spoken to every single believer, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the name of the Son and the name of the Holy Spirit. And we often stop there and say, that's for the evangelist. But you have to continue. The sentence goes on teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We are called to teach. We are called to learn. We are called to listen. We're called to obey. So John's not telling us we have no need of teaching. That we have no need to continue to strive to understand the mysteries of the faith that are revealed in God's Word, both individually and in the church. What is he saying? We have to remember the context in which John is writing. The warnings that John began with. Remember, people had left the church. People who looked like Christians had left the church and they had wandered off following clever myths, new teaching, right? New teaching about God that could only be known by those people and they lured people in. These were the Gnostics. We've talked about them before. But one of their claims was that they received special revelation from God. Something beyond His Word. And people came because they claimed to be teaching a newer way, a better way, something in addition to Scripture. They walk on a different spiritual plane. It's no different than the modern problem we have today. God told me. 
I worked really hard this week preparing a sermon for you all, but I'm going to set it aside because God told me on the way in what to tell you. By the way, that's where you hit stop or delete on anything you're listening to. Usually what that means in my mind is, I did nothing but goof off all week, and now i got to ad-lib a sermon. So, but it is the modern problem we face, right? It is dis- it's dismantling God's Word piece by piece. It, it's picking and choosing, and this is all around us. Pick and choose what you like and don't like in the Bible, and what you end up with is a combination of some verses, a whole lot of your own imagination, and a lot of cultural validation telling you that this is a good thing. And you create a new God, you may still call yourself a Christian, but it is a different Jesus, a different God, and you have a religion that does not save. It does not save you. And it comes complete with its own new definition of sin. And it's usually flipped on its head. The things that God hates, the things that God says are sinful, we embrace as normal. It comes with its own definition of sin. John is pointing to the same problem then that we have today. We just call it by different names. And what he is telling you when he says you need, have no need for teaching is you don't need that gibberish from false teachers. You don't need it. You don't need it from people who claim to be religious or spiritual, who felt their way to God, but have no real knowledge of who he really is. There's no knowledge that comes from men or women who are making these claims to you. Because salvation comes straight from God's Word. He has spoken clearly. Colossians 2.8 says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. I will remind you here, because sometimes I hear this said in such an odd way, every word from start to finish in this book is the Word of Christ. Yes, He came in the flesh, And we read that in the Gospels. But He is the second person of the triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share the same nature. The Holy Spirit breathed out Scripture using men. Every word is the word of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You don't get to pick and choose. There is no difference between Old and New Testament from that perspective. You have church. You have the Scripture. Scripture leads you to Christ. It leads you to truth. And you have men and women all around you, called by God to teach you. As you teach them, iron sharpening iron, right? And that is the blessing that we have. That is how we equip ourselves. Now, it's interesting, and this is why you get these statements about it being so brave to deny truth. To the unsaved world, those without the Holy Spirit working in them, the Word of God is pure foolishness. It's pure Foolishness. That's why they call us small-minded. Not very smart. You still believe these antiquated myths. But we're warned about that. This is nothing new. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural person, right? The unsaved, unregenerate person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 1.18-25 goes into more detail. For the word of the cross, this is speaking of the gospel, the word of the cross is folly, foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? 
Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ crucified, and it is a stumbling block for the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. It makes no sense to the unsaved. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, so everybody, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We have here the promise that the Holy Spirit has been given to us to indwell us so that we will know the truth. We will know the mysteries revealed by God in His Word as it relates to salvation. And what He is saying here, in essence, is that salvation is available to all people. It's available equally to all people to hear and respond to the Gospel, to know the truth. To accept it, to follow it, to follow Him. It is available and accessible without distinction. Which means you also bear the consequence for rejecting the Son. At the end of this verse, John calls us to persevere. He says, just as it is taught you, abide in Him. An interesting concept. Even though God has given His Holy Spirit to all believers, at the same time, all believers are commanded to abide or remain in Christ. To remain faithful to Him in order to have constant communion, that close fellowship with God, the Father and the Son. John wrote in verse 23, back a little higher in our text, that no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It's a great Trinitarian statement. There's nothing shocking here, really. Jesus said, I and the Father are one, John 10.30. He told the Apostle Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, John 14.9. And I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, John 14.11. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're three persons in one. One Godhead share the same nature. And what this is telling us is you can't pick and choose there either. You cannot deny Jesus Christ or the Gospel by your words or by your actions and somehow claim that you're still reconciled to God doesn't work that way. You will know them by their fruit, we are warned. You'll know whether one denies the Son or follows Him by their life, their words, their deeds, what they love, what they hate, who they approve, right? The crowd that they hang out with. All of these things point to that. Jesus said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am, He's pointing to His own divinity, His own God. Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. You have to believe. It's exclusive. You must believe in Jesus Christ with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. You have to know Him. You have to know Him as the eternal Son of God who took on a human nature and revealed to us in that human nature in a way that could be seen and heard and understood by all of us, we could see the radiance of the glory of God. Because Jesus is the exact imprint of His nature. Hebrews 1.3. It's an amazing thing. We have to abide in Him just as the Holy Spirit teaches us to do. Just as the Holy Spirit gives us a desire to do. It is not a natural desire. And when I see the word abide and you see it several times here, it always makes me jump back to John 8. 
for some reason. I don't know why. John 8, 31 and 32. Because there Jesus is speaking to a group of Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was the Christ. He was God's anointed, sent to save. And he says this to them. If you abide in my word, is every word in Scripture, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Anyone who knows that story knows that those same Jews tried to stone him at the end. But, so the story doesn't end well for them. But the, the point is, they couldn't understand what he meant. Why would he say they'd be free? They're not slaves. And in the West, we would say the same thing. But we are. What Jesus is speaking about is slavery and bondage to sin. And freedom from that can only come through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now in our passage, if you read it over and over again, there would be a word that would jump out at you, especially in verses 24 through 28. The word abide would jump out at you. Some of you, depending on which English translation you are looking at, might see remain instead of abide in there. But it's a good translation as well. The Greek word is used six times in those verses. And it means to remain, or to last, or to persist in, or to continue to live in, or to use an old English word that we don't use very often, to abide in. 1 John 2.24 says, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Now, Christians, those of you who call yourselves Christians, you have to understand why this command is here. Why is this here? Why is he exhorting people to abide in him? It's because you will be bombarded at some point with insults. You will be criticized. You will be discredited for your beliefs if you stand firmly rooted in the Word of God and stand for what our holy God has written. If you choose to remain in it, if you work to remain in it, if you work to have it abide in you and guide everything you do, to remain in close fellowship with Christ, then you know that you will lose access to some things and some events. Not always because somebody will kick you out, but because you know you should never be there in the first place. And you may lose friendships. And in today's world, you will lose friendships. This has never been more true than it is in recent history. But it has always been true. This isn't new. It's always been true. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters, and lock in on that word imposters because of where we're at in 1 John, we're talking about people who claim to be Christians but are not. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Nothing new today. My brother sent me an article about a Christian school in Denver, Colorado, last week. The story is so common, I don't know why this stuff is newsworthy anymore, other than just to push an agenda. But it was the same story. You could, you've, you've all seen a version of this, but this just happens to be the most recent one. Christian school, orthodox set of beliefs. Teachers and coaches must sign on that they believe Scripture, that they'll adhere to it, and the biblical standard of marriage. 
And of course, what do people do? They lie, they get inside, and in this case, this coach immediately posts all over social media that he is proudly and defiantly rebelling against God with his own sexual deviancy. It's not a unique story. And we've already covered Romans 1 in this series. We've seen how under God's judgment, a delusional people will no longer hide sin. They will do it openly and they will insist on everyone celebrating it. So it's not that part of the story that I'm that interested in. It's actually one of the comments to the story. And there were several just like this. And it's typical of other things I see. Here's what this man wrote. And he claims to be a Christian. He wrote, the evangelicals running this school are closed-minded. They're closed-minded because they believe Scripture. They have a strict interpretation of the Bible. There is no other kind, by the way. You believe it or you don't. They have a strict interpretation of the Bible and have no room for difference. Go figure. They can't change God. He changes us. In fact, they probably believe the earth was created about 6,000 years ago in seven days or some such nonsense. These views are not shared by most Christians. Reassuring the world that we're just like them. We're just like you. Now, there's a lot. We could pick that apart and trust me, and maybe this is my lawyer background. I want to. But then you'd have to be here for another hour. Um, but I want to. I mean, I want to start with his making fun of creation because he's right, and we should give him credit. The earth was not created in seven days. Every Bible-believing Christian knows that for a fact. It was created in six days, and God rested on the seventh. So someone needs to correct him first for that. But I... I don't think that was probably his point. That would be too generous. He is talking, obviously, about embracing homosexuality. And that is a sin to which the Bible speaks clearly and plainly multiple times. There's no question. All these arguments about it are the most absurd things. It's, it, it, if it was another sin not charged politically, people wouldn't even care. They would see the folly in this. But I'm just pointing this out because this was a string of comments. And people loved this particular comment. And it's the most typical avenue we see. So what do you see there? Right? The attempt is to make Christians, and mind you, he professes to be one, so he's creating a category of Christians, some sort of fundamentalist type Christians, he's, is make them look stupid. Make them look stupid in the world's eyes. Shame them into compromising truth and moving away from God and toward a false religion, a new religion, a better way. Right? He's arguing that anyone who takes God's word as inerrant, authoritative, infallible, timeless, true, fully sufficient, anyone who approaches the text and the world, understanding that we are creations, that God made us, not the other way around, and that He was merciful and gracious enough to speak to us so that we would know who He is and who we are and what He loves and what He hates. And mostly, so we can understand our sin and turn from it in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, the one He sent to save us. Anyone who does that is closed-minded. And it's out of step with what He says most Christians believe. But that's not really true, is it? What he means is that we're out of step with the world and all those who make some false claim to Christianity that actually just embrace the world. Who no longer really hold to a Christian 
worldview. In their mind, God is antiquated. We need to update him. We have a new definition of Christianity. It's sort of based on parts of the Bible we like and then our imaginations because we ultimately believe we're gods. The rebellion you see right from the start. And all of you small-minded disciples of Jesus Christ need to get on board or get out of the way. And this story is repeated over and over in different ways. And so the question is, can you withstand that criticism? Can you withstand that for standing on truth, for abiding in Christ, for letting His Word abide in you? We read these stories and we don't think about the people on the receiving end with the picketers out front. Can you withstand that? Are you willing to suffer for your faith, even in that small way, in exchange for an eternity of glory with God? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Philippians 1.21, or Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Because this is indeed the very attitude that we are called to as disciples of Jesus Christ when we are called to abide in and remain in and persevere in what we heard from the beginning, to use John's word. We know what we heard from the beginning. We know exactly what John means by that because he opens his letter with that in 1 John 1.1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. What is from the beginning? It's the gospel. The gospel or the good news is Jesus Christ. His person, his perfect life, his work on the cross. And it was from the beginning The gospel was always foretold in the Old Testament. It was revealed in Christ in the gospels and it was expounded upon throughout the rest of the New Testament. In essence, John is doing something here that is done time and time again. He is calling Christians to grasp hold of the truth, the very Word of God contained for us in the Bible and to be so equipped by it, so enlightened by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit working through the revealed Word of God, that every decision that we make, every action that we take is informed by and guided by the Holy Scriptures breathed out by God. Every word breathed out by God and profitable. It is this very notion that the psalmist expresses in Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That is what equips us. J.C. Ryle wrote this, Next to praying, there is nothing so important in practical religion as Bible reading. By reading that book, we may learn what to believe, what to be, and what to do, how to live with comfort, and how to die in peace. Happy is the man who possesses a Bible. Happier still is he who reads it. Happiest of all is he who not only reads it, but obeys it and makes it the rule of his faith and practice. Abiding in Jesus Christ means believing that he is the Son of God, having taken on a human nature, who lived that perfect life, who went to the cross for the sins of all who would believe in him. It is accepting his word, every word of it, as God's word. It is abiding in him as first expressed by us through repentance, turning away from sin and faith in Him, obeying His commands. And the reward for that, we're told, 1 John 2.25, and the promise that He made to us, 
eternal life. We'll close with verse 28. Verse 29 bridges the two sections, so we'll touch on it briefly when we move into chapter 3. But verse 28 says this, And now little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence, and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Now, it obviously is summarizing and pulling all of this passage together. But what John does here is a beautiful thing. Because it actually ties abiding in Christ to the return of Jesus Christ. When He comes again in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. And Jesus has given us this most spectacular promise. The thing that should carry us through every one of our trials. John 14, 1-3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's a wonderful promise. And yet for those who deny Him, for those who refuse to abide in or remain in Him, then what Jesus warns is in that day when He returns, that all confidence will wither into nothing. And we will shrink from Him in shame at His coming. He's warning us. When He returns, all people will have to answer the question and deal with the consequences of how they have responded to the Son of God. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Nobody will hide. Nobody will miss this. Revelation 1.7 says He comes with the clouds and every eye will see Him. And for many, that will be a blessed day, but for many more, that will be a day of terror. For all of those people who get the accolades that they're very brave today to deny the living God. Or you're very brave for twisting and denying parts of Scripture and loving what God hates. For mocking His church. That bravado is going to evaporate instantly. Instantly. We get a couple of warnings, right? Hebrews 10.31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And what does that look like? Well, we get a snapshot of it from one vantage point in Revelation 6. 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free. That is a really long way of saying every single person who has ever lived, right? They hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand? It is this bravado, this surrounding yourself with people who, who embrace and celebrate the denial of God will wither and fade and crumble in a powerful way in the face of a holy God. We, we can't even imagine it, but go back and look at how Isaiah, the prophet, felt about that. He cried out, Oh God, I am a man of unclean lips. That was Isaiah. The Apostle John, though, has written to warn us. He's warned us of false teaching. He has warned us of following a path where we grasp onto watered-down, false Christianity that provides no salvation whatsoever from the wrath to come against sin and sinners. We are called, on the flip side, to experience life through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He said in John 10.10, 10, 
I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It is abundantly. Because we can be men and women who are no longer slaves to sin. We are freed by Christ. We have the right to be children of God by following Him. Reconciled to Him for all eternity. That is abundant life. And we can be assured of that. If indeed we will believe the only one sent to save mankind. Jesus Christ. And when we remain in Him, when we abide in Him, By the power of the Holy Spirit, when we have the truth abiding in us, our fellowship with God remains wonderfully, wonderfully close. And we can look forward with great joy to His coming again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do look forward to the return of our Lord Jesus. We pray that He comes quickly. And come soon. Father, we long for the day, the day of promise that you have given us when there will be no tears, no suffering, and no sin in the new heavens and new earth. God, that is a promise that's hard for us to imagine, but a promise nonetheless that we rely upon, that carries us forward, that keeps us oriented towards your holiness and your mercy in saving the people. Lord, we pray for boldness in this world. Father, we are so thankful that You equip us with Your Word. We lament that sometimes we don't know enough of it, or that we make excuses, or that we waffle under the pressure of those around us, or that we let financial or other consequences trump our allegiance to You as our holy God, our Lord and Savior. Lord, You know our weaknesses, for You are our Creator. We pray that You will give us strength, that You'll give us wisdom, that You'll give us boldness to proclaim truth and to live it. Let those around us see the majesty and glory of Your Son in us, Let us fulfill truly your calling to be ambassadors of Christ. And Lord, we pray for the lost. We pray for those who desperately need not only to hear the gospel, but to respond to the gospel. Give us the opportunity and give us the strength to use those opportunities to speak truth, your truth, your glory people around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.